Our last European conference was held in Rome the first week of February 2020. That turned out to be the last week to date of normal life in Europe and the rest of the world. As we were meeting, the first cases of COVID-19 were identified in Rome in individuals recently arrived from Wuhan, China. Within weeks, Italian hospitals were overwhelmed. The government locked down the entire nation and a global pandemic was upon us. Now, this February, last month, the worst of the pandemic was receding and its wounds and disruptions were being repaired and life was springing up again. Then Russia invaded Ukraine and commenced killing its people and destroying its cities and threatening them and the rest of us with nuclear war. A natural disaster was replaced by a man-made disaster of horrifying savagery and stupidity. The free nations of the prosperous West that have been under sustained assault from Mother Nature and human nature constitute a great and admirable civilization. Vladimir Putin and the dictators of China and Iran are right to fear not only the allure of freedom, but also its power. One of the first lessons of the Ukraine onslaught is that authoritarians are as bad at military organization as they are at economic and political organization. Our far-frung cosmopolitan interconnectedness of modern life made the novel coronavirus an instant global killer. But that was also the key to the rapid invention of equally novel, indeed miraculous, vaccines that have saved millions of lives. But the free world has fallen prey to certain soft conceits, which Putin and his ilk are right to see as weaknesses. We had imagined that the world's troubles were amenable to rational management and apolitical expertise. We could leave them to specialized agencies somewhere up there in the cloud, or maybe in Brussels, if only politicians would follow the science and accede to the arc of global progressivism. That would free modern man to cultivate his individuality, his personal pleasures and grievances, likes and dislikes. The notion that hard problems could be wished out of our lives has been an important source of decay in our culture, political rhetoric, and institutions of government. But the last two years have been disenthralling. Experts claimed that they could specify the path of global temperatures for a century hence, within a few degrees. It turned out that they could miss the path of global disease for one month hence by an order of magnitude. Experts claimed that nation states and borders were barbaric vestiges and that global bureaucracies could usher in peace and harmony. It turned out that we had actual barbarians in the here and now and that nations with borders were essential to peace and harmony. Experts claimed that global markets would bring prosperity and democracy. It turned out that they could also bring domestic division and imperial domination. Into the breach came, willy-nilly, the nation-state. It is unnecessary to argue that the United Nations and the World Health Organization proved useless 
in the crises at hand, for everyone could see that they mainly got in the way or yakety-yacked while others had to act. Managing a global, global pandemic fell to individual nations, inescapably, with their diverse demographics, health care and hospital systems, public attitudes, structures of government, and leaders who were accountable to actual electorates and fellow citizens. When the European Union asserted authority over vaccine procurement and distribution and a few other things, it badly mishandled them. Even the New York Times called it a fiasco. Nations that didn't have EU insider privileges had to come up with their own workarounds. When the going gets tough, democracy loses patience with technocracy. Russia's latest war has been analyzed in terms of spheres of influence, the return of great power competition, dictatorship versus democracy. But the heart of the matter is the integrity of the nation. An imperial power invaded a peaceful, self-governing nation for conquest, aiming to seize its territory and farms and industry to subjugate its people and to extinguish its traditions and institutions. That is why Ukraine has become a popular cause around the world. The Ukrainians cry out, this is our land, our home, our country. President Zelensky compares his countrymen's struggle and heroism to the past struggles and heroes of other nations. And he is gauche enough to name names at a time when other nations are toppling their heroes. You don't have to have taken a course in political science to understand this war, to be overwhelmed by the bravery and determination of the Ukrainians, and to reflect on your responsibilities for your own national home. And the response has been a rallying of sovereign nations that no living person has seen before. In the order of nation states, each nation defends the overall order as its own interests require or permit. Some nations have been constrained by their existential reliance on Russian energy. Others have judged that they may play a useful role as diplomatic intermediaries. And we are going to need a delegation to inform Putin that he has lost. Close to the fray, fears that one's own nation may be next on Putin's hit list or that in desperation he may introduce nuclear or chemical weapons into the theater, have produced a spectrum of reactions, both among and within nations. But the overwhelming response has been the provision of stupendous defensive armaments and intelligence and logistical and humanitarian support, repudiation of Putin and isolation of the Russian economy. Most striking of all have been the many reversals of national defense, energy, and financial policies that would have been inconceivable the day before the invasion. And all of this has been spontaneous, nation-to-nation -nation collaboration, each nation bringing its unique assets to the cause without benefit of direction by a supernatural body, a supernational body. The EU has been helpful as a convening body, yet it has disgraced itself by imposing heavy financial penalties on Hungary and Poland for what appear to me to be patently partisan and ideological reasons, 
just as those nations were struggling to welcome and care for hundreds of thousands now in the millions of Ukrainian refugees. No self-respecting nation would have behaved in that manner in a time of war. Let us hope that the Ukraine victory and enrollment in the EU will bring Brussels to a new, new policy of liberality towards the nations of Central Europe. The newly engaged nation states came to these crises unprepared, following a long period of disuetude, self-indulgent politics, and for many, a string of mediocre leaders. Sovereignty needs to be earned continuously, and the essentials are solid finance and low public debt, diversification in energy and other requisites of national independence, and ample provision for natural disasters and military defense. Lacking these fun fundamentals, we have faced many tragic choices that have been more costly than they needed to be, and we will need to learn to do better. In the pandemic response, the diversity of approaches uh, adopted by many diverse nations contributed to continuous learning by doing over the years, and we are coming to understand now that comprehensive lockdowns and school closures were largely ineffective but fabulously costly. Let us note, however, that we have come to understand this precisely because of our nation-led responses that have generated information that would have been obliterated by a uniform WHO-led response. In the Ukraine response, it is, to me, disheartening that Germany has stuck with its plans to decommission perfectly good nuclear power plants, and the United States is still zealous to discourage development of fossil fuels. In America, the response has, has featured too many of the recent pathologies of our own politics, romanticism, performative politics, the efforts to score ideological debating points even in the midst of a war. But the political situation is highly dynamic. I have been particularly pleased to see that in the United States, our Congress has been taking the lead. It has not been our foreign policy elites that have been in charge throughout my life, but our representative legislature uh, acting on a bipartisan basis that has been pushing beyond what the elites wanted to do and carefully calibrating uh, what is uh, prudent and effective to, um, for America uh, to do. Uh, those uh, that doubt our capacity uh, for uh, choice uh, should take heart in developments such as these. We have in our nations in the months ahead uh, and in the course of war, several elections, many developments in party politics uh, within our nations, and many further uh, choices to be made. The situation is highly dynamic. And we, in this room, we who are involved with the national conservatism movement intend that our discussions these two days will contribute in important respects uh, to the changing uh, political scene. 
I'm delighted that we are able to begin uh, our conference uh, with a, a visit uh, and uh, remarks by uh, Savalad Chetsnov, who is the Ukrainian ambassador uh, to the European Union and the European Atomic Energy Community. Ambassador Chetsnov is from Lviv, now embattled. He has been in the Ukrainian Foreign Service for a quarter of a century, essentially throughout its period of national independence. He has been stationed in Turkey, Poland, Brussels, the Netherlands, and last August he was appointed to his current position by President Volodymyr Zelensky. Would everyone please give uh, a warm welcome. It is a great honor uh, that we could uh, begin our conference in this day uh, with the ambassador uh, who has so much to do uh, down the block uh, at uh, EU uh, headquarters. Uh, ambassador Chetsnov, uh, the podium is yours. Thank you.